This podcast is recorded on stolen and unceded Aboriginal land. We acknowledge the First Nations and elders of this country and we join their calls for justice. Have you ever accidentally sent a text to the wrong person? Uh, yes. What was it? Oh, God. <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> uh, I think I might have told you the story before. Went on, uh, on a date with a guy. Oh, yeah. The guy told me um, that he was seeing somebody else on the date and I was confused as whether that meant I want to date them and you or mm. we can't keep dating because I'm seeing this other person. I'm at home. I'm telling my housemate about that with my phone in my hand. I say to my yes. housemate, does this guy want to fucking date me or not? Look down. I'm putting my thumb on the voice memo function and have sent that voice memo to the man in question. It's <laughs> great. It's great. It's, I mean, almost as embarrassing as when you accidentally publish your internal commentary <laughs> on a submission to an AEC consideration of electoral redistribution, right? It's exactly it's the same. It's almost just like that, <laughs> Tom, which is how I'm segueing to the fact that, so I don't know if this is just another, yet another story broken by the children's um, news channel, Six News. And it's head Leo Puglisi. But mm. Leo tweeted this week the Victorian Greens appear to have accidentally submitted a draft version of their electoral boundaries submission to the AEC, which is now published <laughs> online. And it's got a screenshot from the published submission that has this like underlined bit that says, the most crucial point for consideration from the political point of view is that Wills would gain more benefit electorally from moving North Carlton in instead of the northern bit of North Fitzroy. This is gibberish, by the way, to me. Yeah. Uh, however, I believe this proposal is much more saleable to a neutral committee. You reckon that was meant to be in there? I don't know. <laughs> a smoking gun. I'm like, do these people not know how to use comments? Like, what are you drafting this in? Why are you just typing it into the fucking document like an animal? I'm sorry. <laughs> Guys, we need to do, be better at electoral f- fraud. Come on, let's work hard at this. <laughs> is it fraud, though? Like, this is like, no. it's like, what? Why do you think they're making a submission? They're going to make a submission that they think is just going to be the most neutrally democratically, you yes. know, good for everyone? No, they're a fucking political party. They want to win the seat. Yes. This, for people who don't know, yes, the AEC talks about the boundaries of different seats. Political parties make their submissions as to why, uh, what those boundaries should look like, I suppose, and arguing their submissions and whether including a certain suburb is mm. conducive with the character of the seat or whatever. And basically mm. political parties say, don't cut that group of people out because then I'm going to lose my seat and the fucking yeah. Greens will win or vice versa, Labor will hang on to this seat. Massive changes around McNamara and the boundaries during the before the last election, I think, particularly. Yeah, before and, the um, last election or? I think so, ahead of the 2022 one, whenever that happened, about a year right. out, there was certainly some very fierce battles between the Labor Party and the Greens campaign about who should and shouldn't be there, particularly, I think, with, with certain suburbs that had a, a, quite a high Jewish population um, that might have some slightly more conservative politics and might be more attracted to Josh Burns uh, politics as opposed yeah. to Steph Hodgins may at the time. Isn't there some sort of, um, like there's one of the unhinged, because there are various proposals, right? Like each party's made their own little proposals. One, maybe it's the Libs, one has done like this new electorate that is absolutely shaped like a cock and balls on the map, which is really good. Uh, And there's one where it's like you chop Melbourne in half and so then Adam would have to pick which one, which new electorate he would contest. I think that's from the Liberals because then it would also fuck over, fuck them over by creating a much more winnable green seat obviously, in in the north with that half Melbourne. But Adam would be like, I love all of my Melbourne suburbs equally, however. (laughs) Make me choose. I'll run in both. Well, run in, yeah, that's right. I mean, I don't read these submissions anyway. What are the arguments? If you can't literally say this is bad for us politically, what other arguments can you mount to talk about the borders of a certain electoral seat? Like is it basically like the kind of thing like, okay, these people are considered more of a community. Like I don't know Melbourne suburbs, but I guess, for example, in Brisbane it would make sense to be like, well, north and south of the river are, are they're different communities, so it makes sense that they're different electorates and that the boundary is the river. If I were making a submission on <laughs> electoral boundaries, I guess I would say that. What is it, like the Capulets and the Montagues over the river? You can't, uh, yeah, you can't it kind mix. of is. It kind of is, actually. Have you ever fallen in love with someone on the wrong side of the river? <laughs> oh, many times, many times. <laughs> is there an argument to say that 
the political party should have no involvement in this process whatsoever and you should just leave it to the independent AEC? Oh, not really because who's independent? Like, you know, uh, I don't know. It's sort of like what's the point? Yeah, what is the point of them? But I don't think that they should be excluded from making a submission because they also are the ones who know the electorate quite well, like, well, the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. They probably know shit, but that doesn't mean we should do what they say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Victorian Greens, hide your evil anti-democratic posturing, you know, right? Just, just do Except it better. comments before you suggest comment. <laughs> suggest track changes. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but come on, guys. Talk about the Greens. That funny, that bunch of idiots. A wetsuit made head. of fossil fuels, Adam. Made of In oil. a kayak made of fossil fuels, Adam. You're an idiot as well as a hypocrite. We're stuck with the hosts of Chapo Shithouse podcast. Serious danger, Australia. Hey, this is Serious Danger, a podcast about green politics in Australia. I'm Emerald Moon. That's Tom Ballard. Hi, Tom. Hello. Hi, hi, hi Emerald. Hi. Um, this is not an official Greens party podcast. Please stop asking. It's made possible with the help of Mike the Griff Griffin and the Green Institute. Well, it's made possible with the help of Mike because he produces it. That's why he's the producer. <laughs> um, we have some new patrons. We're gonna. So this week we're talking to Alexa from Rising Tide about the massive blockade of the world's largest coal port in Newcastle last weekend. And you're apparently going to tell me who Henry Kissinger is. <laughs> Uh, but before we He's do that. He's a really that, cool guy. He did a really? lot of cool okay. stuff. Well, I'm excited to learn my new yeah. faith. Mm-hmm. Our new patrons that we want to thank. Hi, Alex, Deviani, Carly, Harriet, and Unspun. Thanks for, for joining, the, joining the club, joining the elite, the elite group of Serious Danger patrons who get access to extra special content every couple of weeks and the whole back catalogue and you can get it right there in whatever whatever app you're listening to. It will You'll get instructions when you sign up. It's only three bucks a month. You can pay whatever you want on top of that, but helps us pay Mike's wage and, you know, occasionally do stuff like little live shows and things like that. The other thing that helps us do that is merchandise. Tom tells me he sent all of the orders out. Yes. So if you've ordered things, you should either have them or they will be on their way. We only have a few shirts left. I think sizes, yeah, extra small, small, and extra, extra large. Tom is holding up a shirt for those who are watching the video. Hi, YouTube. <laughs> and we have some stickers too. We have the stickers that have the Clive Palmer quote on them. If you want the doll for life and free marijuana, vote greens. Uh, yeah, shirts are 35. Stickers are, what, three bucks? Three bucks. Eminently reasonable. You know, Bloody bargain. Yeah. It's all through our big cartel. We can put the link for that in the show notes if you want to check it out. Uh, if I very cheekily plug a filming oh, that so I'm cheeky. doing on Monday night, it's very cheeky. I'm sorry. He's such a but there were so boy. many amazing Serious Danger people that came out to the live show for our 100th episode at the Comedy Republic. Clearly they love, they, they must have some positive feelings gonna, towards we me. We should probably tell them that I'm not going to be there though. Errol's <laughs> not going to be at this thing that I'm plugging, but I will be there talking uninterrupted for an hour. So... <laughs> <laughs> You're going to love it. Uh, I'm filming a whole bunch of jokes. It's it's my show from this year. It is I at the Corner Hotel in Richmond on Monday night. It's going to be filmed with fancy cameras and I'd love lovely people to come along and check it out. Dior Chai Singer also filming his special that same night. Comedy.com.au forward slash Corner Hotel. I know that's did you an consider, inappropriate plug. But did you consider calling it It Me? It like me. a real millennial? It Me. I think, I think that was in the mix at some point actually. Yeah, I, I bet it was. I bet it was. Um, we also, speaking of electorates like McNamara, I guess, and Melbourne and Victorian things, we know who the new Victorian Green Senator is. The pre-selection process was finalised this week and former Serious Danger guest Steph Hodgins-May is going to take over from Janet Rice, who's retiring. Um, there was an internal pre-selection process and, yeah, Steph's going to be in the Senate from next year, which is pretty fucking crazy. And the reason I refer to McNamara is because you might remember her from running um, for the Greens in McNamara previously. She's going to take over. Congratulations to Steph. Congrats to all the nominees that uh, run the candidates that put their hands up and fought the good fight to try and win that seat. What do we think about this? The turnout for the vote was 60.4% of members. So 64.4% of Victorian Greens members voted in the election for the new Senate candidate. Is I that pretty that's high. good? Is don't that pretty think, high? Okay. I guess I don't I, I don't have um others to compare it to, but I feel like for usual pre-selections, that's that's high, right? Like internal votes, particularly of the entire Victorian Greens party membership. 
I guess so. I guess so. The two thousand six hundred eligible voters who could have voted, um, and sixteen hundred did. But yeah, I don't know. Like a, 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 a Greens member is someone who's relatively engaged. We've only got one senator uh, now. We're down to one. Um, it was pretty easy to vote online. I don't know. I guess. I guess I, you would hope. Obviously, there would be higher. But if that's pretty standard, then that's fine. Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty significant. You're literally voting on. It's very different to other pre-selections. Like you are in this case voting on someone who is definitely going into the Senate. Definitely going in, and you know she will have to contest the next uh, federal election. But mm. that spot, at least, we're certainly. You know, it's pretty a pretty safe seat for a Green senator in at least one one of them from Victoria um, mm. is pretty, relatively safe. So, mm. also huge congratulations to Adam Bant who won pre-selection in the seat of Melbourne. He's the Melbourne candidate. He ran unopposed. Hard, oh, unopposed. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay, I was going to say tough battle, well fought, well done, Adam. <laughs> you know, we we're all wondering. Of course, it reminds me of the time when I used to live in Melbourne and I went to the pre-selection process, which was just me in a Zoom meeting without a band. It's so funny. You're so cute. <laughs> Accompanying you will be our top peace negotiator, Henry Kissinger. How are you? Is he any good? Looking like that, he talked his way into Jill St. John's bed. Enough said. Big week, Emerald. Big week for the Twitter account, Is Henry Kissinger Dead? <laughs> this is an account Yet. I've been following for a little while. Uh, is Henry Kissinger dead yet? You're right. And it finally got to post yes on Wednesday <laughs> because the former US Secretary of State and National Security Advisor and definite war criminal Henry Alfred Kissinger died at the young age of just 100 years old. Oh, he was 100. I didn't know that. He was a, this motherfucker was 100. Of course. How are you coping with the grief? Did this, does this affect your life? Do you have strong feelings about mm. Henry Kissinger? Can I? I feel like I've added myself for not knowing things a lot on this podcast. And yet again, I'm going to say that I, I had to Google who this man was. That's pretty embarrassing. Hey, am I a bad leftist? No, no. There's heaps of stuff. I don't know about lawns, you know, and you, <laughs> you knew all about that. So we all have our own specialties. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> Even if you're not politically engaged, maybe just culturally, because I mean, as we might've just heard, he did pop up in like Futurama and the Simpsons and hmm. the general Things meme, I, I suppose, of Henry Kissinger. <laughs> All oh, right, <laughs> brilliant. Um, but the general meme of Henry Kissinger as a war criminal has probably been floating around, yes, leftist discourse for quite a while. Right. So it is kind of surprising, I suppose. Mm. But of course, you know, imbued in that the Twitter account, the general idea, everyone's just like, "This guy fucking sucks," and he's living to a hundred years old. Why? Why do evil people live for so long? Uh, that is, that's actually a thing. Hey, like it does seem as though there's something. I don't know something about maybe it's maybe adrenochrome's real who knows they're sucking the lifeblood out of little children they're all part of the cult oh um when you when you looked him up what did you sort of come across what stood out to you oh i only googled it so that i just had an idea of of who he was so that i could pretend to know in the conversations that were happening around me (laughs) genius well I think it's important to talk about. We wanted to sort of flesh out the life and crimes of Henry Kissinger and why it's important. And I think one of the reasons it is important for left-wing people to talk about the actual legacy of Henry Kissinger is that, of course, he's beloved by the political and media classes and they won't actually tell you the truth of who he was. Good example of this was Fox News reporting of his death. Fox News alert, Dr. Henry Kissinger has died today at his home in Connecticut at the age of 100. Kissinger played a major role in American foreign policy across several decades. He was Nixon's national security advisor, then secretary of state under Presidents Nixon and Ford, played a central role in reopening America to China, negotiating the end of the Yom Kippur War in the Middle East and helping to bring America's role in the Vietnam War to a close. Helping to bring America's role in the Vietnam War to a close is the very Mm. contentious one. He survived by his wife for 50 years, two children and five grandchildren. Wow. What a guy. Family man. No, you've been taken in. That's (gasps) propaganda. Me? Fooled by the lamestream media. Not again. Once again. Uh, so I'll run through a bit of the bio and the, the major crimes that you should know about Henry Kissinger, how we are very much living in his world and how this motherfucker got away with the deaths of literally millions of people and yet is celebrated and lauded as an incredible diplomat who made the world a safer place. A lot of this is coming from a great piece and this is really worth your time if you get a chance in Rolling Stone, uh, a piece titled Henry Kissinger, War Criminal Beloved by America's Ruling Class Finally Dies by Spencer Ackerman. Not too long at all, but it really gives you a good overview of how much he sucks. A quick bio, Heinz Alfred Kissinger, his name was Heinz, was born Heinz. in Germany in 1923. 
He was Jewish. Eventually, his family were forced to flee the Nazis in 1938. He makes it to America. He's eventually drafted into the US Army to fight in World War II, which is kind of the only good war. And even then, <laughs> did a whole bunch of terrible stuff that, mm. that are bad. But, you know, that's the one I'll let you off on. Yeah. Right? You're allowed you're to fight okay, the Nazis. Okay, yes. He comes back to America. He goes to Harvard. He's a very smart dude. He graduates summer cum laude, whatever the hell that is. Oh, Celebrated. that's what I graduated. What? Yeah. It just means with with honor or with distinction or something. Oh, in your political science degree or whatever? No, I didn't what did do you political do? science. Oh, well, you did that politics class. That's all I know yeah, about your education. I did one education. politics class. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually when I graduated, my mum and my sister put it on a ring for me. So that's why I remember because I have a ring that says summer cum laude. Summer that's really laude. embarrassing, isn't it? I don't know. What was, you, what was your degree? Was it an arts degree? Comms. Comms, okay. Yeah, started as arts, became comms. Now look at you. Communicating all over the place. That's right. <laughs> Graduates, he's very fancy, he's celebrated in academic circles. He writes a whole bunch of books about international relations and political science, uh, one in which he seems to be quite chill about the idea of just using nuclear weapons to win wars all the time. Hmm. I mean, hey, it worked in 1945 right, in theory. Right, mm. Just keep busting it out. At one point he tries to become an FBI spy, red flag. <laughs> And eventually takes his place in the Washington Foreign Affairs Think Tank Industrial Complex and wants to get involved in politics, which is another red flag in my view. Yeah. But he he just has a lot of principles, Henry Kissinger. Here's a good example of this. This is from a little source called Wikipedia. Keen to have a greater influence on US foreign policy, Kissinger became foreign policy advisor to the presidential campaign of Nelson Rockefeller, supporting his bids for the Republican nomination in 1960, 64 and 68. Kissinger first met Richard Nixon at a party in 1967. During the Republican primaries in 1968, Kissinger again served as the foreign policy advisor to Rockefeller and in July 68 called Nixon the most dangerous of all the men running to have as president. Initially upset when Nixon won the Republican nomination, the ambitious Kissinger soon changed his mind about Nixon and contacted a Nixon campaign aide, Richard Allen, to state that he was willing to do anything to help Nixon win. Oh. Very principled. He was dangerous and bad. And then, no, let me let me get this guy in charge of nuclear weapons. Actually, his that's actually the best option. <laughs> this is the guy. This is the guy we want with the button. And that's what he does. He helps the Nixon campaign win by doing perhaps his greatest crime of all. He actually starts with like his massive biggest whoopsie during that election. All right, check this out. In 1968, Lyndon Johnson, so he's the Democratic president, mm-hmm. took over when uh, Kennedy was assassinated. He agreed to peace negotiations with the North Vietnamese in tacit recognition of the nightmare he, building on the works of his two immediate predecessors, brought to life in Vietnam. So Vietnam's going on. LBJ was like, hey, all the way with LBJ. Mm. Let's keep, we're going to win in Vietnam. 68, he realizes that is not going to happen. And the peace negotiations are going on in Paris. Kissinger, an influential Cold War defense intellectual at Harvard, had access to members of the diplomatic delegation to the Paris talks. He used it to feed information from the negotiations to Richard Nixon's presidential campaign. Nixon ran for president, claiming to have a secret plan to end the war. His advisors told Hirsch they were deeply afraid that Johnson and Hanoi would reach an accord before the election. (laughs) It would save lives in Vietnam, American and Vietnamese, but it would undermine Nixon's hopes of exploiting the explosion in domestic anti-war sentiment. Nixon gratefully took what Kissinger gave him to make the US's proxy regime in Saigon, whose regime peace would destabilize, more intransigent. No agreement was reached until 1973, and the war ended in American humiliation with Hanoi's 1975 victory. It took some balls to give us those tips, Richard Allen, a foreign policy researcher on the Nixon campaign, later reflected to Hirsch. After all, it was a pretty dangerous thing for Kissinger to be screwing around with the national security. Some balls. Is that really what you would call it? <laughs> so, like, evil. just disregard lives for your own political objectives? Is that having balls? That seems to be balls. I mean, it's so crazy. Like, you would really appreciate that. Like, there's a chance of peace yeah. that Kissinger and Nixon deliberately sabotage to make sure that this horrible, horrific, bloody war that America was never going to win mm. would last for another six years also, they can go to the election in 1969 saying like, this war needs to war. end. Fucking hell. Cunts. Wow. 
Nixon does win in 1969. Kissinger is appointed both National Security Advisor and Secretary of State. He's the only person in American history to have held both of those roles. Oh. So so multitasker, pretty impressive. <laughs> Slay. He's also, well, you say Slay, apparently he was quite a, quite a sexy little something. Uh, Women's Wear Daily published a profile of him that year describing him as the sex symbol of the Nixon administration. That's not <laughs> something that's that should be <laughs> printed. Now, have you seen photos of young Henry Kissinger? No. Should I? Yeah, give it a look. Will I want to Kissinger him? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. I mean, he looked hot at 100 years old. I think we could all agree. No way did he look like a bizarre. No, Greenland I'm man. sorry. He's never looked hot. No, He's he never looked really hot. not my. Yeah, I don't get it. Maybe it's like damning with faint praise. If you're the sex symbol of the Nixon young. administration, maybe they're all, yeah. If I look up hot. Henry Kissinger hot. <laughs> no, nah, none of these are working for me. No, it just comes up with um, all the people that he bombed and died in hot flames, perhaps. <laughs> it should. Um, he was a real socialite. So he's sort of bizarrely, he's in the Nixon administration, but he's sort of beloved by the liberal elite and all these people, the so-called progressive right. left and sort of, yes, the, even the democratic elites are all very enamoured with Henry Kissinger. He dates... Actress Jill St. John, who played Bond girl Tiffany Case in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, wow. Hot. How? Okay. Yep. But he manages to do all this and still find time to commit war crimes. And that's important. You've got to make time. Wow. Hustle, rise and grind. Kissinger and Nixon secretly and illegally expand the US bombing campaign in Vietnam into Cambodia pretty much as soon as they come to office under what's known as Operation Menu. So this is a secret campaign to drop shitloads of bombs on Cambodia. In Feb 1969, weeks after taking office and lasting through April 1970, U.S. warplanes secretly dropped 110,000 tons of bombs on Cambodia. By the summer of 1969, according to a colonel on the joint staff, Kissinger, who had no constitutional role in the military chain of command, was personally selecting bombing targets. So he's apparently getting the raw data and specifically choosing which places to bomb. What the fuck? By 1973, <laughs> US bombs had killed an estimated 100,000 people out of a population of only 7 million. Hard to fathom. It's so bonkers, particularly as Cambodia was a neutral country at that point. Okay. Uh, Kissinger's defense is hey, we weren't bombing Cambodia. We were bombing the Viet Cong who happened to be in Cambodia. Sounds so familiar. Isn't that crazy? Hmm. Cambodia hmm. was uh, using human shields to protect the Viet Cong. Were they? Yeah, and they had tunnels under the hospitals. The Viet Cong tunnels. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, 1973, uh, when they, by the, which point they'd killed 100,000 Cambodians, that was the same year Kissinger won the Nobel Peace Prize. Makes sense. <laughs> Good. Kissinger, Obama with all these bombs. I think didn't yeah. Stalin win it? Oh, no, Stalin was time person of the year or something. Anyway. Right. <laughs> During the same time, in 1971, you got the Pentagon Papers. They're released. That's a mm. report on like all the secret documents of U.S. activity in Vietnam between 1945 and 1968, released by um, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, and basically just revealing all the lies that the American government, successive American governments, have been telling the Australian, the American people about what they're up to in Vietnam. Kissinger, not a fan, absolutely despised Ellsberg, had the FBI tap journalists, any journalist that was, you know, critical of the administration that he thought was an enemy to their incredible mission of liberating Vietnam, uh, tapping left, right, and center. And, and it, yet he's still a media darling. Yes. Bizarrely. Yes. Okay. Either, I guess tapping the ones he doesn't like and mm. hanging around fucking with uh, being praised by the ones that do or that want to be part of his his circle. Cool. And it's that same kind of paranoia that was, you know, that Kissinger was very responsible for, which also was um, – played out in the Nixon administration, which pretty much directly leads to the Watergate scandal as well. So I think, you know, we don't have to go through excruciating detail about all these horrible crimes. We should talk about Chile. That's important. But generally speaking, he's just like the Cold War warrior personified and his just basic mission is no one is allowed to be a communist. No one is allowed to question American hegemony or uh, capitalism, imperial capitalism particularly. We're the good guys. We are justified in doing absolutely anything to ensure uh, that goal. And there will be no questions. Yeah. We will not brook any question at all. Is the narrative that like, oh, you would do that if the US is where you find safety and protection after fleeing Germany 
like fleeing the Nazis in Germany. Is that a narrative that's used by the people who love him? That's interesting. Yeah. I think there's some debate about how much his experience as a refugee and his experience, mm. his brief experience of, you know, Nazi Germany, or I guess he was there for what Nazi Germany's from 33, I guess. Um, yeah. From, yeah. Five years or, or what have you, uh, about how much that affected it. Certainly I think his love of America plays a big role in that. He was naturalized as a citizen when he was serving in the U S military. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, we see that a lot. You see people who fled say Cuba yeah. or what have you become pretty um, uh, American nationalists and supporters of American empire and who buy into this narrative of American being the good guys. Yeah, which is ironic when you when you then consider like the, yeah, the narratives that are used for anti-immigration politics and like anti-refugees that they'll be traitors to the state. And right. that they, <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway. Get more refugees, guys. They might become yeah. bloodthirsty imperialists to commit war we crimes. All know, yeah, best way to you know you can build a very, very strong and dependent relationship when someone's vulnerable and yes, dependent on you. So, accept more refugees yeah. for that reason. <laughs> there, there could be another Henry Kissinger out there, just yeah, ready no, to go. You never know. <laughs> um, this is a good quote, I think, from Jacobin. Throughout his career, what worried Kissinger most was the lurking possibility that subordinate countries might move on their own to create an alternative sphere of influence and trade. The United States did not hesitate to put an end to such independent initiative when they emerged. If a country resisted the path laid out for it by the conditions of global capitalist development, the Americans clubbed the challenger into submission. Defiance Mm -hmm. simply couldn't be tolerated, not with so much wealth and political power at stake. During his lifetime, Kissinger was this policy. He understood its objectives and strategic requirements better than anyone among America's ruling class. Right. That's perhaps never best demonstrated that than what happened in Chile. Okay. In September 1970, Democratic Socialist Salvador Allende is elected president of Chile. And that's not allowed, of course, because he mm. wanted to do nice things for the people. He wanted to nationalize Chilean copper mines, get reparations from the US from the horrible way uh, the US had treated Chile over the years. In June of that year, before he got elected, Kissinger was quoted as saying, I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its own people. Yeah. Fucking hell. Which is just like, that is the American approach to democracy, right? You're allowed to, but we're all about democracy and spreading peace and freedom across the world as long as people vote in the correct way. Yeah. Irresponsible. Right. (laughs) Voting what they want. Stupid Chileans. That is so cursed. So with Nixon and Kissinger's support, he denied it in public, but we know this for a fact, the CIA backed a coup that would eventually violently overthrow Allende and install the dictator and fascist General Augusto Pinochet. Yeah. He's bad. He's real bad. Um, and that is ground zero for what we now sort of call neoliberalism. People sort of say that's where it all kicked off. This is from the Rolling Stone article. Pinochet's torture chambers were the maternity ward of neoliberalism, a baby delivered bloody and screaming by Henry Kissinger. This was the just wow. and liberal world order Hillary Clinton considered Kissinger's life work. <laughs> wow, what a line. <laughs> Overthrow a democratically elected leader, uh, install a fascist, open it up to international capital, throw leftists out of um, helicopters, of course, that's very important, and basically, yeah, commit a whole bunch of war crimes and murder any any political resistance whatsoever. USA special. And, and, yeah, and it serves US interests. So Kissinger says, yep, heaps better than anyone who might be considered anti-capitalist being in power. Later in 1976, when there was a few people sort of saying, hey, Pinochet is not that great and maybe he should be held accountable for all the people that he killed and all the bad stuff he did. Mm -hmm. Uh, According to a declassified cable, Kissinger said, my evaluation is that you, Pinochet, are a victim of all left-wing groups around the world and that your greatest sin was that you overthrew a government which was going communist. Uh, Yeah, well, and how did you do that (laughs) Yeah, by killing heaps of people. First of all, that's a bad thing to do, but also... uh, Yes, by yeah. doing that, by killing a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Um, no good. Three months later, US diplomats warned Kissinger about Operation Condor, an international campaign of right-wing assassinations pursued by the anti-communist regimes of Chile, Argentina, and Uruguay. Kissinger has instructed that no further action be taken on this matter. Oh. So, yeah, there are some anti-communists who want to assassinate political leaders, but, you know, the US isn't going to do anything about that. That's, that's fine. No, no. Well, what's in it for us? 
The Yale University historian Greg Grandin, author of the biography Kissinger's Shadow, estimates that Kissinger's actions from 1969 through 1976 meant the end of between three and four million people. That includes crimes of commission, he explained, as in Cambodia and Chile, and omission, like greenlighting Indonesia's bloodshed in East Timor, Mm. Pakistan's bloodshed in Bangladesh, and the inauguration of an American tradition of using and then abandoning the Kurds. Pretty fucking impressive. He did really well on that front. And, of course, once he leaves office, he's not actually in any official appointment. He's apparently an advisor on foreign policy to every single subsequent U.S. president. Does not stop. Does not stop working. Always with a hustle, right up until he's 100 yeah. years old. Um, cool. There was a quote, I think he said, where the case for um, disarming Iraq's uh, weapons of mass destruction is very strong. So this is the kind of political foreign policy genius that he's yeah. very kindly yeah, yeah. sharing with subsequent leaders. We couldn't possibly understand. Everyone loves him. All the Bushes love him. Obama loves him. Obama sent him like a thank you card for all your wonderful advice while he was in office. Good. Hillary yeah. Clinton fucking loved this guy. Right, yes, oh. she's a big fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Presumably was advising her during the disastrous intervention in Libya as well. But, of course, there's no accountability whatsoever. He, apparently he can't travel to some countries. He couldn't eat like there were some oh. trips he had planned um, and oh. people were going to say, oh, if you come here, we might ask you some questions about the uh, the war crimes <laughs> that you're involved with. And he was like, mm-hmm. whoop. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> might not go there. And he's just, he's just venerated. He's celebrated and as recently as last year, Kevin Rudd had a lovely chat with him in August 2022 um, as part of the Asia Society chat about China, which is pretty incredible. Julie Bishop, huge fan. Uh, she was received the 2021 Kissinger Fellow by the McCain Institute for International Leadership. Um, of Hillary Clinton loved him, as we mentioned. Yeah. And yes, no accountability. Of course, America, not a signature to the Rome Statute or actually respects the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction. So he could not actually be taken to The Hague mm. for war crimes because, of course, America can't do that, that not they're allowed that. Yeah. to their best. And I suppose I just want to talk about it because I found it so depressing and I just, particularly with everything that's happening in Gaza at the moment, just the way the cognitive dissonance, even with the benefit of hindsight and history, the Mm. cunts who are responsible for the most bloodshed of the most power who did objectively think, like we know, we know all the horrific things he did and yet high-ranking politicians from across the Western world will say, Henry Kissinger rules, he's the best, he was good, he's the best of us. And he should be yeah. applauded. We should ignore the, all the horrible stuff he does. Yeah, it's one of those things that, yeah, you think about the perspective, like what crimes are okay and what aren't, what killings are okay and what aren't. If a murderer dies, like if they're a high, if a high-profile murderer dies, it's mm. unanimous like this fuckwit is dead mm. and that's probably good. Um, probably that would be someone who's killed like one, two, <laughs> maybe three people that's bad murder's bad yes to be clear and it's probably like a lot of the times good that those people are dead or who cares but yeah we're talking about someone who's potentially responsible for the deaths of millions of people yes and it's a bit more equivocal it's a bit like well <laughs> you know like yeah it's so, it's so this level of distant like the idea that you know the level of distance or the nature of politics or being a um bureaucrat or being a high-ranking political official because there's a level of distance between you and the killing that it becomes murkier. It's like, but that person yeah. has far more power and more uh, ability to wreak more yeah. havoc, as we saw. If uh, Henry Kissinger is, you know, through his actions, responsible for the death of three to four million people, like you should hate them way more than any singular murderer, yes. right? I think we've, I, I feel like we've played Masters of War by Bob Dylan on the show before or spoken <laughs> about it, but like that is my... I probably said my dad played that a lot when I was little and it's still, every time I listen to it, that song fucking resonates so hard. And I feel like it was written about, you know, potentially specifically Henry Kissinger, but people like him and at the end of the song talking about, you know, following their casket and standing over their grave until you're sure that they're dead because, (laughs) yeah, these are the people who are responsible who, you know, yeah, who put the guns in other people's hands who may not be pulling the trigger but they are responsible for these millions of deaths and almost never held to account. Never held to account, yeah. I follow your casket 
by the pale afternoon And I watch while your Lord Down to your deathbed And I stand over your grave Till I'm sure that you're dead I'll tell you what is crazy. I couldn't find any statements from Albanese, Penny Wong, even Dutton, even Julia Bishop. Mm. Julie Bishop. No one seems to have released any basic tweets. There was a guy, Tom Tugendhat, yeah. who's a fucking psycho Tory in the UK who loved him and posted a photo of them hanging out and was just like, this guy's great. He Doesn't that indicate that maybe there is? Because that's the thing. Like I have to say, I didn't really see much coverage like I saw him dead. I didn't actually see a lot of, you know, glowing coverage or even kind of equivocal coverage, but I haven't read any of the coverage. So I don't know that, yeah, what the vibe actually is now. Mm. Um, all right. Last little quote here. I think this is a good summary mm. when we're talking about accountability. This is also from the Rolling Stones piece. Bush's declaration of protection for Kissinger, that is George W. H.W. Bush rejected any notion that uh, Henry Kissinger could be questioned or uh, held to account at all for his actions, coupled with his rejection of the Rome Treaty on the International Criminal Court, extinguished a glimmer of hope that Kissinger would someday join Pinochet under arrest. It was always a fantasy. The international architecture that the US and its allies established after World War II, shorthanded today as the rules-based international order, somehow never gets around to applying the same pressure on a hegemonic United States as it applies to US hostile or defiant powers. It reflects the organizing principle of American exceptionalism. America acts, it is not acted upon. Henry Kissinger was a supreme architect of the rules-based international order. Mm. I think that's important because we're hearing about the rules-based order a lot when it comes to Russia, Ukraine, of course, and Israel and, and yeah. Gaza or what have you. Just like, just remember how loaded, how ideologically loaded and how bullshit that phrase is and what it actually means. And in the life yeah. of Henry Kissinger and the crimes of Henry Kissinger, we see the double standard laid perfectly bare when it comes to the West's, particularly America's power in global affairs. Fuck that guy. Read Rolling Stone and maybe let's go out with Bernie Sanders giving it to Hillary Clinton at a debate back in the day, uh, pointing out the fact that she takes foreign advice from Henry Kissinger, and that's <laughs> fucking bad. <laughs> In her book and in this last debate, she talked about getting the approval or the support or the mentoring of Henry Kissinger. Now, I find it rather amazing because I happen to believe that Henry Kissinger was one of the most destructive secretaries of state in the modern history of this country. I am proud to say that Henry Kissinger is not my friend. I will not take advice from Henry Kissinger. And in fact, Kissinger's actions in Cambodia, when the United States bombed that country, overthrew Prince Sihanouk, created the instability for Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge to come in, who then butchered some three million innocent people, one of the worst genocides in the history of the world. So count me in as somebody who will not be listening to Henry Kissinger. A 97-year-old man is among more than 100 people charged following a 30-hour blockade of the world's largest coal port in Newcastle. The elderly activist says he chose to act illegally because he's concerned about the impact of climate change on future generations. A quietly spoken Reverend Alan Stewart is not your typical protester. I'm just concerned that other people should have the same privileges that I've had. The 97-year-old, one of 109 people, gladly arrested yesterday. (laughs) Armed with kayaks, they blocked Newcastle's port in a 30-hour battle of attrition. Whatever happens to me doesn't matter because the climate is going to uh, affect future generations. The protest was lawful until 4pm and even lawmakers were on board I applaud people for getting involved. I think that it's important that people are having these discussions. But when legal time ran out, the activists stayed at the port illegally. I think if she had a time again, the Minister for Police would have used different language. So Alexis Stewart is a climate activist and an artist from Newcastle and one of the organisers behind Rising Tide, which organised this massive blockade of the world's largest coal port last weekend in Newcastle. 
Thanks so much for taking the time to do an interview with us, Alexa. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Alexa. How have you, has it been like a busy week since, you know, the weekend that was? <laughs> yeah, totally. As much as we've all been pretty tired and keen for a rest, um, it's been, we've really hit the ground running because we know that, um, you know, post the blockade, we, we've had so much momentum and excitement around it that this is a really important moment that we try to harness all of that energy mm. and, and build it up for, for our big plans for next year. So, um, yeah, we're, we're still, I probably say I'm still on a high and, and still a lot of the organisers haven't really properly rested yet. We'll, we'll wait yeah. till Christmas till for that. <laughs> Sleep when we're dead. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, cause and I, we will be if we don't do something right. Um, I didn't like I have to admit I wasn't super familiar with Rising Tide as an organization um Mm. like this was I think probably one of the first things that put Rising Tide on on people's radar right was this massive blockade but what's your involvement with it being um and you know particularly with organizing the blockade but the goals of the organization in general I guess yeah, well, you probably wouldn't have heard of us um, much because we only relaunched last year. So um, we're just over 12 months old now. Um, and, yeah, we I was at the very first meeting where um, we relaunched. Rising Tide was a group in Newcastle um, between about 2004 and 2012. It was like the first mm-hmm. grassroots group using direct action for climate right. change in Australia. Okay. Um, and, yeah, it was doing awesome stuff back then. But then, you know, organisers had different things come up and um, and it just kind of fizzled at around 2012. Um, and then, yeah last year we relaunched um with with really big plans so I was at that very first meeting and I remember being pitched this idea that we were going to get 10,000 people involved in civil resistance against the world's largest coal port and I was just like wow that sounds so ambitious and I don't know how achievable Um, but here we are just over a year on and, and suddenly I'm like yeah, this is this is going to happen, and it's probably going to happen within the next year that we'll reach those ten thousand people and and be able to start doing some pretty sustained disruption. So it's exciting. Yeah. So the idea, like as I understand it, of the the organizer, it's not just about this this blockade. It seems like when you go to your website, there's like a pledge mm-hmm. that you sign to get involved with disruptions that include not just this one, but kind of you know, rolling disruption to this massive coal port. Like, is that the kind of the key focus of the group? Yeah, totally. So I guess we're trying to build a mass disruptive movement against the fossil fuel industry. Our idea is that because Newcastle, well, because Australia, I mean, isn't that big a place and our population is very spread out, that it makes a lot of sense to have a flagship battle or like a focal point for the movement. And Mm. the Newcastle coal port, as well as being the largest coal port in the world, it's Australia's biggest um, source of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's it's the coal when burnt through this port makes up about one percent of global emissions. So I guess the idea is that we have this center point for our movement in Newcastle. You know, like the Franklin campaign, but that um, mm. that all around the country there's there's other people behind us and campaigning for for more broadly um, and into new fossil fuels. Yeah. But it's not burnt in Australia, you see, Alexa. So it leaves <laughs> it the port count. and then it no longer is our problem because yeah, yeah, fossil fuels are going to be burnt somewhere else. Don't you see? Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Someone needs to explain that to you passionately again for the millionth time. I reckon that's what that'll yeah. sort you lot out. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Emissions are actually going down. Um, I mean, that's, that's why, like, it is interesting. Like, I think that focus on exports is so important in the mm. Australian context. So that's why, like, yeah, this action makes a lot of sense to me personally. So... Mm. I I mean the 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 goal ultimately tens of thousands of people or ten thousand people involved in this movement. How far I guess did you get at the at the blockade? How many people ended up you know turning up and what did it look like? So we got um, about three thousand people. We think um, came up Whoa. came out over the weekend. Yeah, it was yeah. pretty epic, and we just like. I think one of the main reasons for that was because we had so much fun. Like there was some massive bands and one of the my favourite parts of the blockade was that we got so much media around the fact that there was pancakes and tea being served on our pontoons as we blockaded the There's the, no the pancakes in the revolution. I don't want it. <laughs> oh, <no> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we built in such a sense of fun and we called it a protestable. 
And so, yeah, we got we got 3,000 folks. We got 109 people arrested, which is the biggest mass arrest for climate in Australia's history. And, oh, wow. yeah, it was, it was yeah, so the biggest civil disobedience for climate um, in Australia's history. And, you know, we blockaded the coal port for 32 hours, which um, is a unprecedented length of time um and yeah. yeah so i think i think we we went a long way to to getting towards our ten thousand. and the rate that we're growing um we're kind of doubling about every three months or so and so wow. that would mean that we should well like easily get our ten thousand people by the end of next year and just in case people don't know, we're talking about a floating blockade, right? So we've got yeah. people in boats and kayaks. Adam Band, leader of the Greens, was out there. I believe Tim Hollow, again, former guest on this podcast and the yeah. head of the Green Institute, he was also out there. So you got people. And Bob Brown too. Bob Brown was there <laughs> with uh, with little to no kayaking skills necessarily. We're out there on the water, literally putting their bodies in between these, these yeah. ships leaving the port or, or entering, right? Yeah, yeah, we had um, a giant inflatable unicorn was out there as well um, <laughs> and we had a floating pontoon that had a slide on it and, yeah, heaps of kayaks, heaps of homemade rafts that, you know, looked quite now. questionable but <laughs> was surprisingly stable. So it was a big party happening out there on the water and there was dolphins all weekend. They were, like, coming so close to our flotilla. So it was incredible. Yeah. And people people were out there watching the sunset, the sunrise. And we had a youth open mic out there. There was a marching band played on the pontoon. Wow. So it was all happening. That's amazing. Wow. I mean so we gotta how- get nature on board. You know those orca whales that are like attacking yachts across <laughs> yes. the world? We gotta get them on board attacking the yeah. fossil fuel infrastructure. Well we did feel like we did have um, Gaia on board because right before the end <laughs> of uh, right before the end of the time when when we were just about to do our big action where over 100 people were about to get arrested. A massive storm came through and it, it was about 2 p.m. And, and our police approval ran out at 4 p.m. And that was when we planned mm. to stay on and, and get, mm. you know, refused to leave. So it was 2 p.m. This massive storm came through, pelting rain, lightning, thunder. And then okay. at about three o'clock, the skies just cleared, the sun came out and everyone just went out on the water and we pulled off this this massive civil disobedience. So, yeah, I think Mother Nature was definitely on board. <laughs> yeah. So did you – okay, so it was 109? Nine, people, yeah. 109 people arrested. One of those was your grandpa? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so my grandpa, the Reverend Alan Stewart, who's um, a Uniting Church minister, he was arrested. He's 97, um, which makes him one of the oldest people to ever get arrested in Australia. Incredible. And yeah, and then the youngest was 15. We had eight under 18 people who, who also wow. got arrested too. So there was massive diversity. Yeah. What were they, what, what were they charged for? So the charge was, um, it was under the Marine Safety Act. I can't remember the exact charge, I think it was 14A in the Marine Safety Act for blocking a shipping channel, something like that. Or maybe it was, yeah, I okay, forget some the exact obscure. words, but yeah. So not the yeah, new yeah. really harsh protest laws because I think that was, you know, when no. I heard 109 people got arrested um, in New South Wales, what we know these really draconian anti-protest laws have been passed. I was like, oh, fuck, yeah. how many of these people are going to be facing really significant penalties? Yeah. No, there was none. Yeah. The, it is, we've had really experience, interesting experience at Rising Tide because this is the second time that we've broken the law that we could have been charged with the new protest laws. Back in April, we also um, stopped a coal train. But neither of the times anyone has ever received those charges. And so this time the maximum penalty was um, $3,000 and and most people will, you know, likely receive a non-conviction. And even those who mm. we've already had two people who've been to court and, and they received about a $600 fine. Okay. Yeah, so I think that's been really interesting to see, yeah, the new protest laws haven't been used. Well, surely, I mean, it looks pretty bad when you've got thousands of people there, including, you know, big names, prominent people, politicians, to use those laws looks bad, right? Like it just goes to show that that's yeah. what happens when you have a, you know, when you reach that kind of critical point of a, of a mass movement or you have enough people standing in solidarity with people who are doing disruptive protests that it makes it much harder for the government to um, use those laws to kind of to, to squash that effectively. Totally, yeah. And this is the thinking behind these mass mass actions, right? Like they can't arrest all of us, and clearly they can't. <laughs> I mean, how do they how do they choose 
which people to arrest and how do they narrow it down to the 109 or is it just literally that's as many as they could get their their filthy well, pig hands on? <laughs> yeah, I guess um, the 109 people were the people who remained out on the channel after our police approval um, finished. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, so mm. Rising Tide, our, our idea is that, that there's safety in numbers, right, is, is if there's a lot of people getting arrested, the penalties are going to be a lot less and we haven't quite reached the critical mass yet where we think we will get to points where it's just physically impossible to arrest everyone. Mm. So I guess our our idea is that we have two phases of, of our movement and we're currently in phase one, which is like the build-up where we're just doing, um, you know, different types of actions, often a bit more symbolic, things like that. And then once we hit 10,000, that's when it's like game on and when we'll be doing mm. like actually like sustained civil resistance disruption and that's when I think we'll get to the point where it's like yeah they, they physically can't arrest us all and and the crazy thing as well was that our, our security culture at this camp was so low we were having legal briefings over a PA and there was police around and I think they were taking photos of our plan so they knew exactly what we were going to do and they just mm. weren't able to stop us from doing it because there was just so many yeah. people so yeah mm. that's great so yeah, because I mean, there's a lot of people. What what has that? You said it's been a big week in the um, in the wake of that. What's the response been like from the media and and from the public to this quite you know massive disruptive climate protest? Yeah, it's we've been pretty blown away by how positive the response has been. Actually, so it made international news. Um, it was translated into over fifteen languages um, on BBC and you know. And we just smashed all of the the national TV in Australia, and that was great. But what surprised me the most was just that we haven't been slammed by the general public. I think most people, mm. you know, they have this perception of what um, an activist is or what it looks like to break the law for activism, and then we've just totally smashed that by getting like a uniting church minister who's ninety seven arrested, and by getting so many yeah. people that people just can't put us in in a box. So we found that, yeah, overwhelmingly we've had really positive responses and people have found it a really inspiring action, yeah. Including from, you know, the progressive Labor government in New South Wales, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> New yeah. South Wales Labor, Labor Premier uh, Chris Minns said that he did not support climate activists involved in the recent action in Newcastle, what? sorry, Chris, Chris Point, what? and that coal was needed to transition the economy to renewable energy, which simply makes no sense and is oxymoronic. Uh, are, we, says, are we doing that line? Like I get the gas bullshit. They're the trying gas, to pull the gas maybe stuff. Maybe he meant to say gas. Who knows? Just doesn't even understand the, the line. We coal to be. Great. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, he said, I don't support it. I'd rather it didn't happen. No. Okay. Oh. What protest do you like, Chris Minns? What you would hate you like to public happen? sector workers going on strike. You hate school kids going on strike for climate or in solidarity with Palestine. When are we allowed to protest to Chris Minns? When yeah. and how? That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. I, at the other response I saw that you put in here, Tom, um, this is from the New South Wales Minerals Council, who, again, very surprised to hear weren't on board with this, Alexa. That's really crazy. Uh, they said, quote, we sold $40 billion worth of coal last year. Oh, good for you. No one can right. afford to pay their fucking rent. Uh, we sold $40 billion worth of coal last year and we need it if we're going to transition our economy to renewable energies. Oh, wait, was that the new, Was that the Minerals Council or was no, that Chris Min? That's Min. That's Min uh, saying yeah, just yeah. in New South Wales, I assume. The <laughs> New South Wales Minerals Council Chief Executive Stephen Galilee uh, oh, that's an appropriate name, said coal yeah. exports are worth more than $70 billion nationally and provided 25,000 jobs. Disrupting coal exports through the port of Newcastle will have no impact on global coal demand or supply, oh, Mr. Gully said. However, it will potentially cause significant economic damage to New South Wales. Well, you can't have it both ways. If we're making shitloads of money it, by exporting yeah. fossil fuels and stopping them is going to have a terrible economic impact, it must have some impact on the fucking climate crisis. Yeah. And of course, you know, actions like this will not single-handed Handedly shut down the fossil fuel industry, but it draws attention to the fact. I, I'm sure lots of people found out the fact that that Newcastle is, um, you know, the world's largest coal export through the through this protest and yeah. directing focus to it and, and drawing attention to that with this incredible mass protest is going to do a lot to, to further climate action and awareness. Right? Yeah, and and the other crazy response that we got before the protest even happened was that. The New South Wales um, police minister came out and said that she applauded activists for getting involved in this protest. And when we heard that, we were just, 
we were just like, are we hearing correctly that the New South Wales police minister is applauding folks for getting involved? That was pretty crazy to hear. Wait, what? Yeah, it was it was insane. And and she said, you know, we all know where this is heading. This is a really important conversation we need to be having. And we were listening to this in our office and like, are we hearing correctly? It was it was just incredible. Um and yeah, just that's nothing like we'd ever heard interesting. before. Yeah, that's really interesting. She'll be fired within days. Yeah, though, surely. But, uh, like, <laughs> nice. She had a good run. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. She has received a bit of flack for that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. And like, obviously, it, it is a strange time to be protesting about climate in a way because Palestine is on a lot of, like, is at the forefront mm. of a lot of people's minds. Um, a lot of people are you know, rightfully quite occupied with with what's going on there. And I also feel like even though we are already like in, in Queensland, you know, we're heading into and across the country, heading into a um, probably quite dangerous summer with, you know, really significant heat waves and, and bushfire. But I have to admit that like personally I get the sense that we kind of have been almost, I don't know, we've lost steam on the climate front since the 2022 mm. federal election and, you know, that that it, it feels as though yeah it's not at the forefront of people's minds as as much and so actions like this I think are very encouraging and to hear that the energy was so strong is encouraging for me because mm. the existential threat of climate change hasn't gone away. Yeah, absolutely. One of the main reasons for that is because when we had the just blatant denial of the Liberal Party um, of the coalition, it was so much more obvious to see. And now that Labor's in government. We know that they're not, they're really, the climate policies are barely any better than the Liberal Party, but they're just, what they're a lot better at doing is, is having this facade that they care about the climate crisis. And mm-hmm. I think for some people, they have, you know, believed that and, and that's why there isn't so, as much anger around. So I think it's really important now that we're, that we're building up the narrative that actually Labor is not doing what they said that they would. They're not acting on the climate mm-hmm. crisis and they're continuing to approve new fossil fuel projects mm, yeah mm. and and trying to do all the dodgy shit right like mm. handing down a report saying that yeah australia's emissions are going down when they're just they're not yeah. they went they're going up yeah. which is the opposite of what you're saying and you're lying and the climate wars aren't over yeah God damn and it. literally just denying the reality of like export like that they just pretend as though exported coal from australia just doesn't exist and just <laughs> somewhere in some other atmosphere um so yes that's i i you know yeah. think this is particularly so important like we like we said so what should people do if they want to get involved and help build this towards that kind of you know critical mass movement that you're trying to get to yeah so as we said this is really just the beginning for us next year we've got big plans and it'll culminate in another blockade of the Newcastle coal port but next year it'll be for 10 days with 10,000 people is what we're aiming for yeah and that's going to be the launch of of the civil resistance phase of, of our movement so We've got a lot of other plans between now and then, but um, taking our climate defence pledge is is one of the best ways that people can get involved to stay in the loop and commit to to join the movement or at least very actively support it because we know that we're just going to need thousands of people if we're going to overcome the the chokehold that the fossil fuel industry has on on the government and on Australia. So yeah. 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 So risingtide.org.au, the pledge is there. We'll put the link in the show notes. Folks can go check it out. And yeah, thank you so much for everything you've been doing, Alexa. How's your how's your grandpa? Is he doing all right after the arrest? He, he is going great. Last night we had a party celebration and he came in and ever the crowd went wild. Um, <laughs> we're, we're, we're starting, we're talking about making hashtag be like Alan t-shirts because he is such, yeah. he's such an inspiration. So we'll see if we can get some Alan merch happening. But no, he's, he's doing very well <laughs> love that all right well our, our love and respect and solidarity to him and to you all thanks alexa thanks, thank you alexa. so much <laughs> be like alan yeah what would alan do <laughs> well i'll let you know if your glasses turn up uh, yes well i'm sure i left them in the car no one must know i dropped them in the toilet not I, the man who drafted the Paris Peace Accords. That's our show, everyone. Thank you so much for watching. You can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't yet, please give us a five-star review. That really helps out the show. We would love that. If you're watching on YouTube, give us a like um, and subscribe to the channel. That would be fantastic. And you can always follow us at Serious Danger AU, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, 
SeriousDangerPod.com for all your serious danger needs. Email us anytime. Hello at SeriousDangerPod.com. That's right. Love you. Unless you're Henry Kissinger. Don't love you then. (laughs) Slightly dangerous to Australia. Congratulations to Steph. Congrats to all the nominees that uh, run the candidates that put their hands up and fought the good fight to try and win that seat. What do you think of this? 2,675 eligible voters cast a total of 1,617 votes, resulting in a turnout of 60.4%. Yeah. Now, I assume that means just not everyone put all ordered all the candidates, right? There were six candidates, and so no, doesn't it just mean out of six? Oh, out of two six seven five eligible voters. Oh, I see. Only yeah. sixteen hundred people actually cast right, the votes. Oh, I see. Don't know my okay. maths, but and then a turnout of sixty percent. Okay, so, and 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 one vote is just is filling out their ballot properly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. You know yeah. what? Cut that out. Don't worry about that. That's me just being Cut a fucking idiot. I, think it's, well, I, th- I mean, uh, let's talk about I the think turnout. it's a pretty it's high good, turnout, like yeah. 60.4%. Don't, cut out. Do again. Don't cut out your yeah. bad maths. Don't cut no, out that you can just, see that that was 60%. It was just be confusing, I think. Oh, <laughs> sure. What do, we, <laughs> <laughs> what do we think about this? The turnout. <laughs> <laughs>